I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. And from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State, this is Democracy Works. Chris, today we have as our guest uh, Frank Baumgartner. Frank is a former colleague of mine at Penn State. He's now a professor at, of political science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And he, along with uh, two of his colleagues, have written a really fascinating and important book called Suspect Citizens, What 20 Million Traffic Stops Tell Us About Policing and Race. Frank got a hold of from the state of North Carolina uh, data on all their traffic stops over a multi-year period. Yes. So these are all traffic stops within North Carolina. And essentially, they're asking who gets stopped and what happens after they get stopped and uh, what are the biases right. in these stops. And, and we thought it was important to talk about this subject because this is kind of the other side of the coin of what we, what we uh, reference with our uh, topics on uh, Colin Kaepernick. What he and the other uh, players were arguing is a, um, a hopelessly biased police system. Right. I mean, Ka Kaepernick is, is one part of a larger movement, uh, which, is, uh, which has really taken on power and force over the last several years, having to do with the unequal treatment mm -hmm. of African Americans by police. Uh, right? Kaepernick is talking mostly, as are many of the other NFL players, about police shootings, uh, but it absolutely encompasses the wider arena of how African Americans are just treated differently by the police and the implications of that. Right, and I think that's something that uh, we, in this podcast, um, it's, it's uh, good for us to bring this to light, to, to really speak to what happens to um, African Americans as a result of these this kind of basic fundamental unfairness. Well, unfairness it's a basic civil rights issue. I mean, they're being they're, the the argument and what's confirmed in the data mm -hmm. is that they are treated they are treated differently. They're being treated differently by the police. Right. There's other evidence they're treated differently in the uh, being treated differently in the uh, criminal justice system. And I, I we're, we have a podcast coming up shortly. Uh, where we'll talk with somebody about the uh, inequities in the in, in uh, incarceration system as well. Right, which is just you know steps along the way. Steps along the way towards incarceration. Yeah, so I think it is um, it is a, a a really good topic for us. It's timely, but again, our our job here is to uh, talk not just about topical issues, but to say how these implicate democracy and and the implications here are. Um, serious, important, and, and things that, that all of us should be aware of. Yeah, so let's, uh, let's, uh, let's go to Jenna and uh, hear from Frank. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Frank Baumgartner from the University of North Carolina and author of Suspect Citizens, What 20 Million Traffic Stops Tell Us About Policing and Race. Uh, Frank, thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. So I don't normally like to um, start with origin stories, but I think this one per is uh, perhaps worth telling. Um, so 20 million um, traffic stops. Can you tell us how the, the state of North Carolina um, came in into to possession of this information and how it ended up in the, the hands of uh, you and your colleagues? Okay, sure. That is a good question. Um, back in uh, 1996, I think it was, an investigative reporter for the local newspaper, the Raleigh uh, News and Observer, by the name of Joe Neff, 
uh, did an investigative report about the possibility that a certain drug unit of the state highway patrol was searching black and Hispanic drivers at a higher rate than uh, white drivers, and that they were potentially really targeting these individuals on the highways. And that led to uh, uh, a serious uh, inquiry and denials on the part of the highway patrol, but uh, also, the late 1990s were a time when there was a lot of uh, increased concern for this uh, thing that people were beginning to call driving while black back at the time. And North Carolina became the first state in the nation to mandate uh, collecting traffic stops. So since 2000, the Highway Patrol has been doing it. And then uh, since 2002, the law was expanded to cover every police department in the state. So that's how they started collecting the data. And then uh, I was asked to volunteer uh, to look at the data for a task force of uh, defense attorneys um, uh, in 2011. So I was presented with a CD that had the data and asked if I could figure out how to get my hands around it. So I've been working on it for seven years now. Can you uh, walk us through um, based on, on, on what you found, how a traffic stop experience might differ for, say, a middle-class white man versus a young African-American or Latino man? Yeah, so as a middle-class white man myself, I can tell you my personal experience is that I very rarely have any interactions at all with the police. And if uh, and when I do, it's always uh, very respectful and uh, I would say either by the book or else uh, very helpful to me. The last time I uh, was um, pulled over, I think, was um, probably 20, 25 years ago. This never happened to me in North Carolina. It happened to me in other states. But anyway, the point is that it's extremely rare. Um, for a young man of color, uh, it would be um, frustratingly common. And one of the things that we show in the data is not only is it very common, but it's also very commonly fruitless. That is to say, the traffic stop leads to just a warning or maybe no action at all. It's less likely to lead to a ticket. A citation is less likely if the driver is African-American, uh, but it's much more likely, about twice as likely, to lead to a search of the vehicle. And in certain combinations, such as certain neighborhoods, certain times of the night, like at two in the morning, uh, for a young man of color, the search rate might be 15 or 20 percent, whereas the average overall is, is less than 3 percent. Right. And, and so what did you find is kind of the, the cause of, of this uh, disparity in, in search rates? Well, we really think that there's a stereotype that police are faced with a very difficult, low information situation when they're looking at a driver uh, in a routine traffic stop. And inevitably, it seems that they use uh, visible cues to indicate to themselves whether they think that person might be uh, engaged in suspicious activity. The interesting thing about um, the legal precedence here is that the Supreme Court uh, is made up mostly of white middle-class men like me, and they've kind of used their own um, experiences, I think, informally in informing the law. And so the court has said routinely that it's only a momentary inconvenience, and any individuals could be subjected to a, an occasional stop and search uh, for the for the 
uh, in the interest of the public good. And since it's only momentary and implicitly, I think they assumed it would be very rare for any individual, like it would be for me or for most justices of the Supreme Court, uh, they said that it was a, a trivial inconvenience. And I think that's where the mistake gets made because um, it's not that uncommon. Philando Castile, who was uh, killed after a traffic stop up in Minnesota, had been pulled over, I think, uh, something upwards of 35 times in his short lifetime. Yeah, yeah. You cite that in the book. You cite uh, 46 times in 14 years. Yeah, so if I'm going to be pulled over once every 25 years as a middle-class white man, it's clear that I just can't uh, routinely empathize with somebody who lives on a different side of town and who uh, might routinely be uh, targeted by the police. I've never experienced that myself. And that's where I think the empathy gap comes from, where people just can't believe that it could be happening. Right. And we'll we'll come back maybe um, at the end toward you know, some of the, the, the impacts that this this research has had. But um, on the on the police side of things, you also point in the book to um, something called uh, risk management policing. Um, can can you explain what what that is and how it figures into this picture? If you think back to the 1960s or you think back to your history books about the 1960s, depending on your age, um, police uh, focused on solving crimes once they had occurred. But there got to be a very big shift in the philosophy and ideology and uh, professional practices and norms within policing in the 1970s. It really started. And that was to see if uh, the police couldn't use certain social and psychological demographic profiles uh, about who criminals are and what they likely look like if they couldn't then interrupt the criminals before they committed a crime. And so policing became much more proactive and much more aggressive. And the magic about the system was that it didn't happen to middle-class white people. It didn't happen on the nice side of town. It happened on the other side of town, maybe at night or during the day, but to people with very little political voice and ability to protect themselves politically. Uh, people who were seen as, um, either expendable or uh, likely criminal elements. If you're a young black or Hispanic man with an older car and out-of-state plates um, driving late at night, you know, you're, you're just in a different world than uh, an Asian American lady driving in rush hour. Right. And, and in, in some cases, the, the police, you, you say in the book, are kind of using the you know, minuscule pieces of the traffic code as an excuse to pull them over and do searches for, for drugs or, or other substances. Yeah, the interesting thing was there was a, a, a deputy sheriff down in Florida whose uh, county sheriff's office had some jurisdiction over Interstate 95. I think it was near Daytona, Florida. And he uh, decided that he was concerned about drug couriers driving through their jurisdiction. And so he routinely was pulling over black and Hispanic drivers uh, as they went up and down I-95. And judges were throwing out his cases because he didn't have any excuse or explanation for why he pulled over this driver other than their ethnicity or race. So judges were throwing him out. So the um, deputy sheriff, who then later became quite well known and he was elected to be sheriff, did some research. And the research suggested that if you had a crack on your license plate holder, 
or if you had a shadow extending over your license plate, or if you had any crack or malfunction in any part of your vehicle, um, that he could pull you over for cause, and it was a legally justified traffic stop. Uh, so that's the vehicle part of the equation. The other part is the traffic law itself. If you were going 54 miles an hour in a 55 zone, he could say that you were obstructing traffic. You were impeding the free flow of traffic. If you touched the white line, he could say that you were driving on the improved shoulder. Obviously, if you were speeding, as most drivers do routinely on interstate highways, he could pull you over for speeding. And once he had a legally justified reason to pull you over, then it was open season because he could talk to you and ask for permission to search your vehicle and use all the kind of informal forms of influence that an officer might have to do what he wanted, which was to uh, search the vehicle. The line that the police use to describe this is you have to kiss a lot of frogs to find your prints, or there's any number of, of metaphors that you can use to, to describe this. But does the, the likelihood of, of finding something match up with the uh, proportionality under which people are, are pulled over? The numbers just don't add up. You have to stop tens of thousands of people before you find one or two uh, significant uh, contraband hits. So we looked at the contraband uh, hits in North Carolina, and in virtually every case, the median size of the contraband hit is one unit or less than one unit. And it's vanishingly small numbers of times did we find in the data that really large amounts of contraband were found in a routine traffic stop. That takes uh, intelligence. Uh, and using the traffic code as just an excuse to pull people over for a hunch uh, makes sense that those people have zero political power and if we ascribed no value at all to their time and sense of self-worth. But if we're willing to uh, ascribe any value at all to their a time, their convenience, their sense of full citizenship, then we have to recognize that there's a cost for each one of these fruitless searches. And there's uh, hundreds of thousands of these fruitless searches across the country every year. Right. And uh, let's let's talk about that, that cost a little bit. So what impact do all of these stops and searches have on democratic participation for these these folks who are being pulled over and searched? Even just a simple interaction with the police officer, such as a questioning or a traffic stop, could reduce the likelihood that someone will vote by as much as 10%. And uh, in our research, we looked at it in a little bit of a different way. We identified that in those communities in North Carolina where the African-American uh, segment of the population has significant political power, such as uh, several seats on the city council and uh, a large share of the voters in the previous election, the racial disparities in the traffic stops in those communities are significantly lower, even so much that in the communities with the highest uh, level of political power for the black community, um, there, there are no statistically significant racial disparities in search rates, uh, and even black drivers in those towns are more likely to get a ticket. Uh, you might think that a ticket is a bad outcome for a traffic stop, but getting a ticket indicates that there was a good reason to pull you over. Not getting a ticket indicates that perhaps the officer just pulled you over because he wanted to talk to you and that your driving really didn't merit the sanction of a, of a ticket. 
So there is a big cost, and I think that when we think nationally in the bigger picture about why is it that many men, especially men, but uh, women as well in minority communities don't trust the police, uh, and we overcome our empathy gap to look at the numbers and understand that in that community, the police might very well be playing quite a different role, not protecting and serving, but uh, really uh, intervening and being much more aggressive and kind of hassling people in the hopes of breaking up a crime. And then we have to ask, well, are they breaking up a lot of crimes? And I can say that using the traffic code and using routine vehicle stops as a method to do that is just extremely inefficient and it alienates people and it makes them not trust the government. It, it uh, sets up a vicious cycle, right, where there's you know people who already don't have a lot of political power than you know, these incidents happen and they're less likely to vote and become engaged as they even have, you know, fewer seats at the table or less of a voice in the in the conversation than they would have had otherwise. Yeah, and then the virtuous cycle, we can see because we we also were able to look at some cities in North Carolina that instituted some reforms. Uh, and in, in Fayetteville, North Carolina, they reduced the uh, use of the traffic code uh, as a kind of a, a, a method to hassle people. And it turned out that the crime rate went down and the calls to 911 per crime started to go up. And so people in the community who were no longer being subjected to what they considered to be unduly aggressive police practices in their side of town began to trust the police more and call into 911 when they suspected uh, some some difficulties in their neighborhood. So that was a real success story. And I think we could thank the police chief in Fayetteville for, for some real leadership there. In, in, in some of the, the ways that these um, incidents are, are framed in, in the media, thinking about Philando Castile and other kind of high, high profile incidents like that, that the police often point to, you know, bad apple police officers or try to kind of paint this as this is just one or two you know, problem officers that might have, have biases or other, other factors going on. Um, what, what does your, your research say about that? Is it, is it truly just a, a couple of, of bad apples or is, is there a larger kind of systemic uh, problem going on here? And uh, the, an- the short answer is that it's both. Uh, in our data set for North Carolina, we, we have an ID number for every police officer, although we don't know their name or their uh, anything about them, but there is an anonymous ID number. And that allowed us to cluster all of the traffic stops and searches uh, officer by officer to see if indeed there were any officers who had very unusual patterns of stopping or searching only the black or the white or Hispanic drivers or whatever the case may be. And indeed, we did find a lot of officers who stood out from their colleagues. Uh, but on the other hand, we found systematic patterns where tip, the typical officer had really significantly higher rates of searching uh, black drivers as compared to white drivers, especially among men. Uh, the racial disparities are much lower among female drivers. But in any case, when we controlled for what we called these bad apple officers, the systematic and institutional practices were still present. So I think the short answer is really accurate. It's both. There are bad apple officers, and we brought many of them to the attention of their supervisors across North Carolina. And I think some actions have been taken in a few cases 
but it's it can't be limited to that. We can't accept an idea from a police chief who would love to believe that he's just got three or four officers that are causing all the problems of community mistrust. It's That's just not true. It's much uh, broader than that. In a couple of days, we're going to be doing an interview um, with your colleague, Peter Enns from Cornell. I know he has a, a blurb uh-huh. on the back of your book, and he's um, mostly just written, he's he's just written a book about um, incarceration, which is yeah. kind of like the, the other end of, of this problem in, in, in some ways. I think you touch on this in your book that, um, you know, African-American and, and Hispanic um, folks who get pulled over, if they don't pay their fines or if they're already behind, that they could end up going to jail over over a, a, a traffic violation, right? That's for sure. From speaking with police officials, I've learned that, you know, that computer in the officer's, that laptop computer in the in the patrol car allows an officer who might be stopped at a stop sign to run the license plate numbers of the people stopped in front of him. And if there's a warrant for someone's arrest for an unpaid court fee or unpaid child support uh, or any other misdemeanor, or of course it could be a felony as well, but oftentimes the court systems are loaded up with many, many uh, cases of small misdemeanors. And when you drive your car, the officer in a patrol car uh, on his computer can look that up uh, instantaneously. And so it really does lead to a spiral downward of increasing involvement in the criminal justice system. And of course, once the officer pulls you over for an, ex, um, uh, an existing warrant, he's going to search your car. And if he does, or he's going to be likely to. And if he searches everybody's car, uh, he's going to find some marijuana typically a very small amount uh, in the cases where he does find it. Of course, he won't always, but he's gonna, it's going to subject that person to an increased level of surveillance. And then that has a certain probability of leading to another problem with the law. So these definitely are um, spirals, and uh, it's good to stay out of them. But once you fall into that spiral, it can be very difficult to get out. And so you mentioned um, one kind of reform that that happened earlier on on the the city level. Um, what what other impacts um, have these these findings had since since the the book was published and since you've kind of you know been out there trying to to tell this story about what we can glean from all these traffic stops? Well, I think one thing that's happened is a lot of police chiefs and police leaders around the state and the nation have been looking at their own statistics more carefully. One of the lost opportunities in all this work that North Carolina has put into collecting the data is that the central office that collects it, first of all, never issued a single report. So nobody was aware of any of these um, uh, patterns or how uh, ubiquitous they are. Um, And so any city that might have been the subject of some kind of study would feel that they were being unfairly singled out. And I like to be careful not to try to single out any particular places uh, because the the patterns that I've seen, they are a little bit worse in some places than in others, but they're pretty much everywhere. I mean, the routine, the, the average uh, increased likelihood of search in North Carolina for a black driver is over 100%. In Ferguson, Missouri, when the U.S. Department of Justice did their investigation into all the terrible scandals in that police department, the increased likelihood of search was 70%. 
And so North Carolina on average is worse off than Ferguson, Missouri. And a lot of people would point to Ferguson as an epicenter of a particularly bad community police relations, but it's not really that much better in many other places. So I think that we have to recognize that the data are very consistent, the patterns are very clear, and uh, I think it's also worth questioning in the police world whether we're really getting a lot of bang for our buck with using the routine traffic stop as a mechanism to fight crime. I think that most police uh, leaders would recognize that there's got to be a better way. This is alienating people and not providing a lot of, uh, lot, uh, very much to show for it. This issue has not gone away, so there's been some real organizational structure behind keeping this issue of disparate treatment in criminal justice, but in policing in particular, on the national agenda. And I think it's been a difficult conversation, but it's, I think, one that is not going away. The numbers keep coming. People keep doing more and better studies. And the data that I've uh, analyzed certainly you know, are robust. There, There is no way that you can make these disparities go away. And I think police departments have come to understand that rather than suggest that there are no differences in policing across race and gender, we have to recognize that there are very significant differences and then ask whether it's worth it, whether it's justified and whether we get a public safety benefit from it. And the answer seems to be no, we don't. As a matter of fact, we're probably paying a significant cost because of the reduced uh, trust in government and trust in the police. So that's something that I think every American uh, should be concerned about. Right. Well, uh, thank you for, for helping us close the empathy gap um, a little bit here today on our, our podcast. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, so that was a, um, a, lot of, a lot of stuff to chew on. Maybe not 20 million data points worth, but there's a lot of stuff <laughs> going on here. Um, it, I, I think what I w- what, one thing that I thought that Frank mentioned that directly followed from what you were talking about was this idea of um, the, the importance of or the, the impact, the inevitable impact of inequality. Yes, he re- I, I believe he referred to it at some point as a, a, not a sense of full citizenship, uh-huh. that uh, and that this then has implications down the line. That it it affects how one uh, perceives of their efficacy in the political system, mm-hmm. their sense that they want to, that their their sense of that they can meaningfully be involved and should be involved. Uh, you know, it's it, it may be hard to give the flavor of it a little bit. And sometimes I think the dash cams are really valuable for this. But this is a terrifying thing. Right. Uh, when you're pulled over and suddenly they're searching you. and. But, you know, I think it's it's what's interesting to me is how fundamental to this whole experience and the reaction. It's not simply that you're pulled over. It's not simply that you're searched. It's that there's this fundamental unfairness to the whole thing. I'm being pulled over and I'm being searched because I'm a young black male. And that's the only reason. And you know it and I know it. And I 
rage against that fundamental unfairness. Right. And, and, and I, I think that's one of the most interesting parts of this whole project is how they talk about like who's most, what are, what are some of the signifiers that might lead a car to get pulled over? Right. Uh, and, and among them is that the driver is black, but then also there are economic indicators mm-hmm, as mm-hmm. well. You know, a broken taillight, mm-hmm. uh, it can get you pulled over, but you know, especially with a new car, replacing a broken trail light, tail light is incredibly expensive. Right. Uh, but then also what happens once they're pulled over, that this is, that, that they're, they're using these, they're using these traffic stops, which often don't result in tickets because there really wasn't a meaningful mm-hmm, traffic mm-hmm. violation as essentially an excuse, excuse. to- uh, A legal it, excuse, it, to, but to, nevertheless an excuse. Right, to search, a car, to right. search somebody's car. Right. Um, the, the other thing that I think it, that is um, hopeful in this book, because it is, you know, a pretty damning indictment, is, is his note, what he said about Fayetteville and how uh, this vicious circle of um, African Americans being treated unfairly, which mo- moves them away from, um, from politics, which makes them less represented, which makes them more likely to get pulled over, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, can be turned around. And, um, you know, he mentions Fayetteville as being a place where if we just move back to a different standard of probable cause, um, we end up with a town that is just as safe um, and where uh, citizens have, feel more uh, efficacy, more empowerment, and, and more equality. Yes, and the other side of that was were their findings, which I think are, are among the most important findings I have in the book, which is that uh, in communities where African Americans have more political power, there's less of this sort of discriminatory behavior. Where they have less political power, there's more of it. Now, this tells us a couple things that are important. It, it tells, first of all, why opening up avenues to political power, you know, helps to ensure fairness. Right. Uh, but it also it it also speaks to uh, Jenna got at this in a, in a somewhat different way with, with Frank in, in terms of, uh, you know, individual police officers. This, it, this is not a problem as it is often presented as only a bad apple cap, mm-hmm. cop, uh, which is a problem but is dealt with in one set of ways. But, but rather, this is a systemic political right. issue, right. Uh, that the way the government carries out its responsibilities bureaucratically mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, is a function in part of, of who controls government, of political power. And, right. and, and the, you know, so if you think about the kind of, you know, historic, prolonged, effective uh, ways in which in the South in particular, but not exclusively, uh, African-Americans were kept away from political power. It, you know, this book just starts to give a little picture mm-hmm. of, of how that way, how that just works its way through the way. system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there are other ways, too. And, and uh, so really, I, I just uh, really commend this, uh, this project. Well, it really does speak to, um, you know, we talked, I, I don't remember which episode, about, you know, the different kinds of representation and the different arguments about whether an individual of one kind can represent genuinely a, a person of another kind. And how, in some cases, yeah, absolutely they can. But in some cases, those experiences are fundamentally different and those differences matter. And so there's a good reason 
for why women want to increase representation. There's a good reason why um, Latinos want to increase representation because that's the best prospects for them um, receiving fair treatment in a democracy. From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam, and thank you very much for listening. This has been Democracy Works. Democracy Works.